Hey chocolate lovers, this week is the last interview in our five-part wrap-up of season two. This episode features the full-length interview I did with Dr. Christy Leslie, a cocoa researcher based in Accra, Ghana. Dr. Leslie is also a lecturer in the Global Studies Department at the University of Washington at Bothell and author of the book Coco. I interviewed Christy for episode 21, titled, Is Chocolate Going Extinct? And in the interview, we get into global warming, power dynamics in cocoa, and fine-flavored cacao in Africa. The interview is on the longer side, for sure, but I promise it's worth it. Enjoy! I'm Dr. Christy Leslie, and I am an interdisciplinary scholar of the cocoa and chocolate industry. So I approach my research and my writing from many different angles. Um, generally, I research and write about the politics and economics of the cocoa industry, focusing on West Africa. But my work spans the rest of the African continent as well, where cocoa or chocolate are important industries. And I do also look at the cultural issues surrounding uh, cocoa and chocolate as well. When did you start your work around Africa? Oh boy, gosh, a long time ago. Um, the first time I ever came to Africa was in 1997. I really, my relationship with fieldwork and, and just the experience of Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, I guess, started at that time. So that's like, I don't know, 22 or 23 years ago or something. So yeah, a long time ago, my fieldwork on cocoa specifically in Africa started in 2005. But before then, I had been doing African studies as a graduate student um, and was I had worked on the continent already, traveled extensively here. So over 20 years for African experiences and then um, cocoa since like 2005. Okay, so cocoa since around 2005. So how has your work changed over the last 15 or so years? Or how has the industry changed around you over the last 15 or so years? Gosh, those are, I mean, those are great questions. I think two different responses. I mean, the industry has changed in the rise of craft chocolate in the U.S. and Europe, which has now really begun in sub-Saharan Africa as well. And so I think that that is a definite change I have seen. Um, you know, in Ghana, for example, where I live, like the first time I came to Ghana ever was 1999, I think. And there was no chocolate. You know, there's one local brand. It's called King's Bite. And it's made by a government company. Um, you know, now, however many years later, there are many local chocolate makers and confectioners. And so, you know, I have definitely observed craft rising in this part of the world, craft chocolate. Um, at the same time, that's really tiny if we look at things from an economic perspective. And as far as the cocoa industry, 
craft doesn't change anything around that. You know, there's like the cocoa industry in Ghana and in West Africa is, is basically still functions in the same way as it did for many decades. So, you know, there's, there's stasis, but there's also change, but more perhaps on the chocolate side in my own observations than on the cocoa side of things. My own, my own work has, I think, shifted significantly. Um, especially in the methods that I prioritize and my own learnings in how to get people to talk to me in a like forthcoming way without feeling like they have to tell a particular story. And so, you know, I would say over the past 15 years, since my my field work began in you know in West Africa around cocoa, I've seen various scripts or narratives um, that everyone kind of plays along with, and in terms of describing particular structures of the industry problems, you know, like just to use an example, like child labor is very much discussed. It wasn't when I first started this work, but it became a topic of discussion and everyone kind of knew how to answer it because West Africa is quite saturated with researchers and journalists and NGOs, you know, who are all coming to address whatever the particular issue is of the moment. So everyone ends up talking about these things in the same kind of way, uh, telling the same kind of story they're more or less expected to tell. And what I have really prioritized in my recent field work is just learning how to get beyond that. It's really hard. I don't, I don't always do a great job with it, but I'm doing my best to establish when I'm talking to someone, a farmer, you know, a cocoa buyer or someone who's involved in the value chain, like how do we have a frank conversation where they don't put me immediately into a certain category of researcher or think that I expect to hear a certain thing? For me, that's been the major shift, and it's an ongoing process for sure. And how do you go about, I mean, what what kind of narrative is it that they think you want to hear? Is it just that you want to hear some sob story? Um, it depends on the issue, right? So... If we t- again, if we take child labor as as our example, enough journalists have come, you know, enough researchers have come, enough organizations have come expecting to see and hear about a certain like condition of labor here, <laughs> um, and, you know, for children. And farmers have learned how to respond, and like the responses would be things like, "Yes, we have." used children to do certain kinds of labor in the past, but now we have learned how to not do that, you know? And so to me, that's a really kind of silly conversation to have because (laughs) I've been on many, many, many cocoa farms and understand that the realities are incredibly complex and every farmer is in a different situation, even though there are many commonalities to growing and selling cocoa for a living across West Africa. You know, every family is in a different situation. And so it's not very useful or enlightening. I don't feel like if I'm talking to someone that I can represent them well in my research or my writing, particularly, if I 
have this one-dimensional conversation about how we used to use children, you know, to do certain tasks and now we don't anymore because we've learned not to. There's more to the story than that. But when you're dealing with like super sensitive topics around people's livelihoods and around ideas about Africa that come into play constantly, you know, in conversations around cocoa from this region, it's really hard to get people to let their guard down a little bit and to talk quite honestly about what their realities might be. So they have their talking points. Yes, <laughs> for the most part, yes. And I completely understand why. Many people's jobs now depend on the, like whatever issue is prominent in the chocolate world, you know, whether it's deforestation or climate change or child labor or gender, whole industries spring up around that issue. And people's jobs depend on it. They depend on addressing these particular issues in certain ways. So, you know, I, I would do the same thing if I was a farmer. Like, I'd be like, like, whatever you need to, you know, talk about to continue these mechanisms of support, because it's not like any of these issues don't have realities to them. There are issues with child labor. There are issues with deforestation. There are obviously issues with climate change. You know, the work is good work. It just tends to get really reductive and like collapses into a single narrative, like a single story that is just, like I said, not reflective of reality. There is so much more complexity to any of these issues that when you have a superficial conversation about it, you're not really unearthing the kinds of challenges that people face every single day here. And so how do you like, how do I move beyond that? How do I move beyond the superficial? Um, it's, it's like a constant challenge from a research perspective. That actually dives really well into my next question or sort of my first real question, which is, can you, give a primer on the power dynamics in cocoa and like the cocoa value chain it's like enormous i mean i don't know how many pages is it 200 something you know it's like i could tell you there's like a 200 page version answer to that but i'll do my best to be succinct like the primer yeah the primer yeah i mean you know broadly speaking we're looking at geographically quite um, cocoa grows in the tropics. So we're in the tropical belt here in West Africa where cocoa grows. And it is historically not been processed or consumed here. That happens in the temperate zones in Europe and North America and Australia for the most part historically. And so, you know, you've got like the raw material be being produced in one part of the world and all of the value added to it and all the pleasure of consuming it happening in a totally different part of the world. And the farmers are really well aware of this. Like everybody likes to tell a story about how they met a cocoa farmer and they had never heard of chocolate before. Like that's really not been my experience in the field in Ghana and Ivory Coast and Sierra Leone and Uganda, like wherever in Africa. I've really never met a farmer who had never heard of chocolate. Like that's kind of a little crazy to me when people say that because farmers live in the 
same world as you and I. They may live in a pretty remote rural region, but it's not like they're completely cut off from industrial society. And so they generally know what chocolate is, but they don't often have access to it. Like I have met farmers who don't consume chocolate regularly, who may have only tasted it once or twice in their life. And, and so they recognize that one power dynamic that's been really present in conversations I've had with farmers over these many years is that they understand that someone is taking the crop that they work so hard to grow and turning it into this beautiful thing, like this beautiful industrial product, and they can't access that product. And nor can they even participate in its manufacture, you know, and so a lot of the power is really kind of condensed on the manufacturing side because it's so much more valuable, like chocolate's so much more valuable than cocoa, if you look at it strictly economically speaking. And farmers understand, for example, in Ghana, they will say things like, we know that Ghana has no national chocolate industry. We know that our country produces all this cocoa, but it doesn't manufacture chocolate. And we're upset about that. And they recognize that power lies with the people who do control the value-added end of things. So that's one huge power dynamic that structures the industry as a whole. But then beyond that, I would say every social construct that we participate in, gender, race, class, you know, sexuality, ability, nation, all of these things that help us fit ourselves into social fabric, they all play out on really individual scales as well. And so there's gender dynamics in every single cocoa-growing household. They play out differently, you know, for everyone involved, but that's another kind of power that operates. And obviously, you're not like a cocoa farmer and that's your only identity. You're a person, a human with a gender and a race and a class position in society. And all of that either gives you some power or takes some power away. And so each farmer is living their life as an individual with a certain place in their social fabric. And there's so many power dynamics around that that like we can't ever really understand. And so, I mean, all that's to say that there's these huge power dynamics operating on a global scale where power lies at the manufacturing end. But when you look at any particular cocoa farmer, that might not be the most important thing in their life. It maybe they have other super important power issues to deal with as a result of who they are in their own household or in their own community. And so on the one hand, it's really useful to talk about global power dynamics in the chocolate industry. And on the other hand, it doesn't really tell us very much about any one particular farmer. They might have other more pressing concerns than where chocolate is manufactured. So you were saying that cacao farmers in Ghana in particular are cognizant of the fact that Almost all cacao is shipped out of Ghana to be processed and for the value to be added. But that there is some chocolate that's sort of starting to be made in Ghana, but is it a fine flavor using fine flavor cacao or higher quality cacao? Is there any more uh, focus being put on how the cacao is processed? Like in, in some places that I've visited or people I've talked to, this idea of running out of cacao and 
all these articles that came out around 2014, around half a decade ago, this idea was a huge factor in their choice to switch to producing fine flavored cacao or just higher quality, more premium cacao. But has that idea of using that type of cacao to make chocolate that's more expensive or more high quality, has that hit Africa in any way? Or is it just producing locally? Yeah, so I mean, that's a great question. And I'll answer it in maybe a different way than that question might usually provoke. Because the reality here is that, okay, there are fine flavor projects happening. I've observed them. I have nothing but positive things to say about that work. And I expect and hope that it will continue and that the kind of education for farmers and exporters and everyone in between around like fine flavor work will continue with strength. However, I think the craft industry has done a really good job of instituting this narrative of hope and change that like the only way to kind of save cocoa or have a great chocolate experience is by growing fine flavor beans. <laughs> like, it's just not a meaningful category here and it doesn't even make sense. While again, there is fine flavor work being done and I hope that it will inform things here. It's also the case that like the cocoa industry in West Africa is the biggest in the world, right? And Ghana in particular has developed a reputation for the best quality bulk cocoa and like that is the flavor of chocolate when we think of chocolate like chocolate and not whatever flavor bar like people have come to expect all these crazy flavors chocolate flavor comes from here right and so if you come here you will only hear people in Ghana talking with pride about the flavor that they produce and about the quality of cocoa that comes from the like 800,000 smallholders in this country. And so the notion that they should be creating some different flavor, that's the path to <laughs> improvement is really doesn't have a lot of purchase because the industry is already extremely successful at producing high quality, very nice flavor beans that are really the foundation of chocolate the world over. And so it's a, it's a tricky question for me to answer in that, yes, there's stuff happening. And I believe that elements of fine flavor training are incredibly useful and can elevate certain understandings of the process of taking a bean to a bar here at the origin end of things. But I also feel like it's kind of not super relevant to the larger cocoa industry and there's not a need for it. You know, like Ghana is not going to sell more cocoa. <laughs> like no, no individual farmer is going to get a better market or a better price growing some other kind of bean. They've already got that. It's already in place. I think that in Asia and in the Americas, we have very different ideas of what fine flavor might actually stand for. And when your 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 reaction to that term actually made me kind of flip a switch in my head and 
realize that the way that we're discussing fine flavor in Asia is very different from the way it's discussed in the Americas. Mm. Interesting. Here in Asia, a lot of people talk about fine flavor or high quality or premium cacao. And here it's just become sort of shorthand for processing your cacao when it's ripe and at a much higher quality such that you're making cacao with a flavor that is not just palatable but maybe unique different and very tasty that kind of fine flavor is more of what i was referencing rather than like growing heirloom cacao on some kind of like small plot of land and charging ten dollars a kilo for it or something like that i mean and that is like like so illuminating and a really wonderful contribution to broader understandings of fine flavor i think because yes like most of the time the default image you know of fine flavor is something like heirloom <laughs> like take this strain that only exists in this particular plot of land and has this amazing flavor and grow it and we'll pay you like ten dollars a pound or whatever right but what you describe for asia is already been happening for over a century in Ghana and Ivory Coast, <laughs> particularly Ghana, right? Because the cocoa industry here is much older. So like, there is no issue with farmers learning how to ferment and dry their cocoa here. They know how to do it. There's been agricultural extension officers teaching these processes for more than 100 years, you know? So you, it's really hard to Fine flavor in that sense, like how do you process your beans post-harvest, immediate post-harvest for quality flavor? That's already exists here, you know? And so there's, I mean, in Indonesia, for example, most of the farmers aren't fermenting at all, you know? And so if you look at the world market, like those beans trade at a discount for that reason, you know, whereas Ghana trades at a premium because it's already happening. So it's so just such a such an interesting thing you said because I think it's a really underappreciated aspect of West African cocoa is that it tends to be like craft chocolate disparages West Africa uniformly. You know, there's like a blanket dismissal of anything that comes out of West Africa for a whole host of reasons, most of which in my assessment is either ignorance or a refusal to acknowledge that the flavor of chocolate, the one that we all grew up with, you know, it's like we didn't grow up with tasting heirloom bars, you know, for the most part, like chocolate, like that flavor is West African flavor. So it's really damaging, I think, when, when people kind of talk about West Africa as this place that has not yet achieved flavor success because that's quite the contrary to reality the global chocolate industry depends on the flavor that comes from this part of the world well something that i was talking to the the chocolate maker who's representing asia i guess you could say earlier was that the buying power in asia is so much lower just on average as a whole compared to North America, where a lot, North America and Europe, where a lot of the, most of the craft chocolate is made and traded. And he was just saying, like, we have to, at our factory, find a balance between 
paying the farmers directly and buying at a really good price. Or he was saying around seven dollars a kilo, so like a little over three dollars a pound, which is great for here. And it's perfect for motivating the farmers, but it means that they have to import all of that cacao to Malaysia or purchase locally and do everything as direct as possible to cut out any middlemen. And they have to make smaller bars and process it in much larger batches, like 100 something kilos per batch. But it allows them to sell a 32 gram bar at about $3, which is still pretty expensive for Malaysia, but it's pretty reasonable for city folk in like Kuala Lumpur, certainly reasonable in Singapore. But considering the different steps that they went through were relatively the fewer steps that they went through to make the chocolate bar and to get the cacao to their factory outside of Kuala Lumpur, it it just makes sense. And it's well-processed cacao. I couldn't tell you what varietal it is, but it tastes good. And for them, that's fine flavor. That's high quality. That's bean to bar. But I don't know, maybe my sense of what it is in, in the Americas is now sort of warped. I don't think so. I think that, you know, one of the important things for me is to really remind people that craft chocolate, no matter where you are in the world, has come to dominate conversations because it's super attentive to consumer education. Craft chocolate has built itself around interaction with consumers, often even face to face, but a lot through like information sharing about the supply chain, about types of cocoa, you know, I mean, there's there's all kinds of work that craft chocolate companies have done to introduce a lot of information and knowledge about the process of turning cocoa into chocolate. The large companies haven't really done that, especially in recent decades. I mean, they used to like 100 years ago, but now they don't um, as much. And so I think craft chocolate has come to dominate conversations and whatever narratives craft chocolate is telling about cultivating specific varietals or paying a higher price and doing direct trade is just what people think about now and they think about a pathway to change. And it is just economically completely irrelevant in West Africa. It's like nobody here cares. Like, so yes, I said there are many new craft chocolate makers and, and beautiful confectioners in Accra where I live and in the surrounding areas. And I am so thrilled to see this industry happening and all the work that these people are doing is incredibly exciting to me. And I think that it creates a cultural shift, but economically, it's like zero, you know, <laughs> like, and so like the cocoa industry is exactly the same, whether you have like from an economic standpoint, you know, whether you have craft chocolate makers in a car or not, again, from a cultural or a social standpoint, they're incredibly impactful. And there are so much wonderful work, I think, even ongoing and yet to be done around shaping people's ideas about chocolate and 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 like bringing chocolate more prominently into not just culinary culture here but in just conversations around food and sustainability and like that is all definitely happening but you could take all of those makers out of the context here and the cocoa industry would continue exactly as it always has and that's not just for people here in Ghana making chocolate. That's for every craft chocolate maker. 
every single craft chocolate maker in the United States could say, we want to buy like, cocoa from Ghana and Ivory Coast. And it would be like the tiniest droplet in the humongous ocean that is cocoa in West Africa. <laughs> it's like, who cares? You know, like certainly Ghana Cocoa Board could care less. They just need to get thousands of containers of cocoa out of the country. They don't care about your interest, craft chocolate maker in like direct trade. <laughs> it's just irrelevant. So it's a nice story to tell consumers. It doesn't really matter here. Do you happen to know when cacao first hit the African continent or the islands around Africa? Oh, was it late 1700s? Yeah, I mean, it depends on where, right? Because Africa's a big place. Um, but yeah, I would say, whew, gosh, by the late 1700s, there might have been little bits of cocoa somewhere, but it was really across the, the 19th century, you know, across the 1800s that we start to see cocoa starting to appear. But the big industry, the large-scale industry that we see today didn't really start until the late 1800s and certainly into the early 1900s. So it was like the first decade of the 20th century was when African cocoa production, well, no, that's not really true because Sao Tome was earlier. So yeah, late, late 1800s is when you start to see the large scale stuff. And then Ghana itself, certainly the first decade of the 20th century became the number one cocoa producer in the world. I ask because in uh, in Asia, cacao first was brought to Asia in the Philippines in the late 1600s, and from there it spread to many different countries and the British colonies in South Asia and Southeast Asia, the French colonies. There's a long history of 100, 200, 300 plus years of cocoa cultivation on a lot of islands, which has since been sort of forgotten. But a lot of these places when the cacao was processed, it was basically taken out of the pods, drained a little bit, and then dried. So the history of processing here has been very stunted. So I think just sort of fixing that mindset and the steps of processing that farmers undertake is already bringing it up to a level where a lot of like Trinitario and Cruello or I don't that's not those aren't even the right categories or whatever these days based on genetic testing. Like but all of those different types of cacao are flavorful and delicious, but they just haven't been processed properly for the last two, three hundred years. But now that they're being processed properly, people are appreciating them and they're kind of calling it, I guess, fine flavor cacao or premium cacao or whatever you want to call it. And that's the sort of Asian perspective of fine flavor cacao. But is there a long history of since the beginning in Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire? Togo, Nigeria, all of the cacao being processed properly? Or is there a history of just setting it out to dry? No, the fermentation and drying best practices have been a part of the cocoa industry conversations here virtually from the beginning. There's long history of regional collaborations and research sharing around best practices, which again, is like, Nobody really talks about that. Like it's a lot of the stuff I'm writing about right now. You know, as I work on my next book, it's a it's a big part of what I'm addressing is this incredibly rich history of knowledge around, you know, best practices that comes from here. 
So there's, I mean, Ghana is a knowledge center when it comes to cocoa. You know, the, the Cocoa Research Institute of Ghana is just not too far away from where I live. It's up in Tafo. And, and that's where knowledge has been produced and disseminated around cocoa husbandry for like many decades. Right? So there, it's just like, it, like, I have tried over all these many years to talk to farmers about what would improve their livelihood. And literally no one has ever said to me, if I could just be better at my fermentation and drying, or like if I could just get my hands on that varietal that's going to produce whatever flavor, like it is just not, it's not relevant. Farmers' concerns here are very different and there's different understandings of like, and realities around what improves livelihood. But it's not, I need to ferment better because they, they already know how to do that. It's just a very different set of circumstances. And, and again, I think a very much underappreciated set of circumstances, like the knowledge and the expertise that exists here has pretty much been ignored, if not outright denied or disparaged, particularly in conversations around craft chocolate. So how many cacao farms do you estimate you've visited in the last decade and a half? Oh, gosh, like, I don't know, hundreds? <laughs> I mean, it's hard because I, you know, every research project is different. Like some I'm, I'm going to many, many, you know, talk to many, many farmers. I'm focusing more on one person, but I don't know, probably hundreds. So for people who maybe barely even know how chocolate is made, what is the physical environment like on these farms? Like the smell, the weight of the air around you, what you see above, below. Can you paint a picture? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. I mean, for the most part in West Africa, it's quite physically uncomfortable to be on a cocoa farm, at least for me. It, you know, cocoa grows best in a humid, rainforesty kind of environment. And you know, here along the southern portion of West Africa where cocoa grows for the most part, you have these pretty sweltering conditions. And, you know, when you're on a farm, it feels quite close. You know, the air can feel very oppressive, particularly if it's humid out that day or if we're in the rainy season. During the dry season, like we're into now, it's, it's incredibly hot. Everyone's always looking for a bit of shade to stand in. And the ground is, covered with leaves and piles of discarded cocoa pods that are, you know, basically left to kind of rot or in some cases they're burned and people make soap out of them. But there's always discarded pods around and there's always crunchy leaves that have fallen from the trees or damp ones. And you're, you're walking through this kind of messy ground which has to be that way. It's not like the farmers just don't clean it up. <laughs> it's just like the way it has to be on a farm. Bugs definitely are an issue. I've been bitten by probably everything, um, insect wise. And so it's, it's, it's always like a balance between trying, for me, trying to like cover my whole entire body so I don't get bitten by something and also trying to manage the heat. Um, so yeah, it's not, it's not comfortable. During the season, it smells like cocoa everywhere, but it's not like a chocolate smell. It's like, um, uh, almost like a, a it's like a, a, a fermenty smell you know it's 
borderline like rotten, but it's not quite in that category. It's just like stinky and it gets everywhere. It like, gets in your hair and, and in your clothes and stuff. And that's the smell of, of cocoa sitting on, on drying tables and in fermentation piles everywhere. And especially here in like the western part of the country, which is the enormous cocoa growing area, it's just like inescapable. You're just with it all the time. And so physically, I find it to be a challenging environment. Um, but it's also kind of a marvelous one. Being around agriculture is very soothing in many ways. When I'm with farmers who really care for their trees and have that kind of special relationship with plants, because not every farmer does, obviously, but with the ones who do, who talk about their plants and their trees in this really caring way, it's a pretty wonderful experience. So thinking about the, just the concentration of pods at that time of year and all the time, what do you think of that whole fruit chocolate that was announced by Kayabo a few months ago? I think it's very interesting. I think that any initiative that makes more comprehensive use of the fruit is an interesting one to consider. There are smaller companies than than Barry Gallabot working in Ghana to extract more value from the cocoa fruit in different ways. And I think that all of these things merit our attention. And I think that they're not likely to be scalable anytime soon. So, you know, that's to say, like another way of saying that is, are any of these whole pod or whatever it's called projects or interventions going to revolutionize the industry and raise all farmers out of poverty in the next like 10 years? My answer would be no. But I think that that doesn't mean they're not worth pursuing. Like they, they are worth pursuing and they should be. Again, it's like, how do we create more value in this industry in innovative ways? That is always something that I would find interesting to consider. You know, as a researcher and a writer, I don't do that kind of work, um, but I would support it in any way possible because I think it's it's important. So would you say it's sort of similar to the potential impact that craft chocolate would have if it were to move all of its operations and sourcing to Ghana? Sort of drop in the bucket. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I don't know. It would be different. You know, it would be different. It would be, how, I mean, how do I put this? I'll make a gross generalization and say that smallholder farmers are conservative. And that's obviously not true for every single cocoa farmer in, you know, the world. But on the whole, they, the people I've spoken to have tended to be conservative in their approach to their farming because it's so precarious already that why would you add new risk? And so risk looks really different from a farmer's perspective than from like a Barry Calibot perspective <laughs> like or even from a like a trader's perspective like an individual's going in the field to buy cocoa and so people perceive risk in really different ways and so i think convincing farmers that something would not be a risk to them is really step one and and i wouldn't feel like i could comment on the potential of something like this whole pot or whatever or any of these other kind of like how can we get more value from the cocoa fruit initiatives until I was convinced that the farmers were convinced about it 
because it's not easy. I mean, even if you look at pretty standard agricultural practices like pruning, many times farmers are really resistant, even though the botanists, like the people who study cocoa diseases and whatever offices wherever in the world have pretty well established that pruning in a certain way will reduce the incidence of such and such disease and, you know, all kinds of wonderful healthy benefits for a farm. If you tell a farmer, now the next step for you is to cut the branch off your tree, they very often will say, you're out of your mind. That branch is going to grow me some money. So it's like even these kinds of what looks like an absolute win from one perspective if you look at it from a farmer's perspective, might not look like a win at all. So personally, I would need more evidence before I could say whether any of these kind of things would be a, a large-scale success. So what kind of role do you see value-added processing into cacao or chocolate or I, you were talking about soap earlier I know that was like the, with the carbon and but like value-added processing of cacao products do you see that having a future at least in the near future in Africa yes absolutely it has not only a future but it has a present and to be totally honest it's my ongoing research question that I'm dealing with right now it's one of the big ones for me is where can value addition take cocoa and chocolate industries across sub-Saharan Africa? I mean, that's that's a, a very large question. And my, my current research is not just, you know, focused on Ghana. I'm, I'm looking quite broadly across sub-Saharan Africa. So in each country, in each city even sometimes, like rural area versus urban, it, like value addition looks really different. And so the furthest I've gotten right at the moment is to say that like value addition feels important and it's happening and it's happening in a variety of ways. And as far as measuring impact, I'm not yet sure what the best measures would be because kind of getting back to something I said earlier, you can have a sociocultural impact that might be really important. And then you might have an economic impact that might be less important or vice versa. You know, so I think the way that impact will play out in value addition in cocoa across Africa looks really different. And I don't think there would be one route that's going to work for everyone along the value chain here. I think that there's like most likely what I will find and what I will write more about is how value addition is improving things in a certain way for this particular group working in this particular way. Right. But I don't know. I don't think I could come up with like a blanket answer that would cover every scenario across Africa. I mean, it's just too big and too diverse. I just wanted to share something I noted earlier and hadn't been able to say yet was, I don't know if you know, but in Korea, the most popular mass market chocolate brand is called Ghana Chocolate. Yeah, I do know about that bar. Yeah, I've, 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 I've tasted it a few times, actually. Oh, I'm sorry for that. Oh, I love it. Do you not like it? No, no, I don't. Oh my gosh, seriously? I love that bar. Oh, I could oh, eat it all day. Are you having the Japanese version? Maybe that one's better? I I have mainly had the Japanese one, yeah, because my, 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 my friends from Japan here will always bring me back some, so maybe the Korean version oh, is different. Uh, maybe it is. I haven't had the Japanese version, but the, the Korean version is super sweet and, like, vague. It's it's a very... <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, it's... A, it's like, I do. <laughs> 
it's a very <laughs> Asian kind of chocolate. It's like chocolate flavored versus actual chocolate, which kind of reminds me of earlier you were saying a lot of people mention how they've met farmers who've never had chocolate before. I think most farmers have had a chocolate flavored thing before. I think what people tend to convolute the two is like having a chocolate flavored thing and then having a real chocolate made with 70% cacao and like 30% sugar or whatever but that doesn't have any palm oil or PGPR or other Mm -hmm. things added that change the texture and the overall experience like I think that's what a lot of the makers (laughs) here will bring to farmers they'll be like oh this tastes way different from the chocolate I'm used to and it's just because it's the ingredients are somewhat different I think that's what people are confusing the two everyone knows what chocolate is for the most part but you know it's a it's a great point because i think the other thing that is you know and i and i've never maybe articulated it in in quite this way before but the kind of responsibility that craft chocolate conversations have laid upon cocoa farmers to do everything right and grow the exact right varietal in the exact right way and, you know, creating the best potential. I mean, that's a huge burden to place upon a smallholder farmer. And at the same time, as we all know, craft chocolate is highly variable when it comes to its own success rate around quality. I don't think I would be exaggerating if I said that maybe 5% of the craft chocolate bars that I've ever tasted in my life from any country anywhere have been something I would consider to be high quality and the rest falls somewhere between inedible to just okay. And so, you know, there's, I think that's one other conversation that hasn't really happened is who gets a pass around this, you know, like who, who gets a, I'm on a learning curve or this tastes good just because it's unusual or different and who gets like all this responsibility laid upon them to produce something with maximum potential for excellent flavor. So, you know, where are we looking? Are we looking to the farmers? Are we looking to the manufacturers? Where Can we maybe think about some more equity in that conversation? To shift a bit more, I think almost all my questions have a little more to do with the cacao growing itself and maybe more climate change and a lot of, I guess, rumors is the best word, things that we hear about cacao growth and cacao production in West Africa and a lot of generalizations. But what effects of climate change have you noticed in recent years on farms? And, and what do you see as cacao's future in the face of, of a warming climate? Yeah, you know, I'm not the most qualified person to speak to the specifics of climate change here. So, But I can speak definitely generally and I can say what farmers have shared and I can say what I have learned from other people with more expertise in the area than me. But I would say the scenario here is not the best possible scenario in the whole world, but I wouldn't say that that's unusual. I mean, where is, like, who's really, you know, who's preserved their natural resources to maintain our climate in the best possible way? Like, nobody. So I don't think West Africa is a standout in that way. I don't think that the policies and practices, you know, that have been enacted across the region, particularly when it comes to the forest management, they're not better or worse than anybody else's. Um, but the fact is that, you know, the forests in Ivory Coast and Ghana are fairly decimated at this point. You know, there's other more intact forest areas over in the Sierra Leone or Liberia side of things. But 
The major deforestation has happened, and that has definitely contributed to regional climate instability, I guess is the best way I can say it. And so globally, as the earth warms, West African environment is not as able to respond to those changes as maybe it would have been like a couple hundred years ago. But and that does impact farming. So I would say I don't think there's any imminent danger. It's not like I go into the bush now and the farmers are telling me there's no cocoa left. I mean, they're, they're quite hopeful. And, so, you know, the, certainly the last few years have been years of extreme abundance of cocoa across Ivory Coast and Ghana. This year is looking to be pretty solid as well. So, you know, are we going to run out of cocoa tomorrow? Definitely not. You know, are we going to run out of cocoa in 10 years? Probably not. What the long-term impacts are of climate change on the cocoa-producing environment here, I can't think that they would be very positive, but how many, how long is it going to take? I don't know. Like, does anybody know? A hundred years, 200 years? I think it's a really uncertain future, but it's very surprising to me when I read articles where people say we're running out of chocolate because it's definitely not my experience in the largest cocoa growing region on the planet. In terms of how climate change affects the trees themselves and their ability to produce, how does climate change affect trees on the ground, in the ground? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, cocoa here across Ivory Coast and Ghana, it depends on the rainfall. And so, you know, when you are in a drought and the evidence seems to suggest that droughts have been more, if not more severe than, I don't know, longer or like more impactful in certain ways in recent years. And here I'm, I'm thinking of some very nice research that a doctoral student of mine has recently done. So that's not research I've done myself, but that's um, based on someone else's work. But it seems like the drought has intensified in certain ways, whether that's because it's getting longer or less rainfall in the time surrounding the drought. I don't really know. But that makes it not possible to grow cocoa at scale. I mean, it needs rain. Like it needs water. The trees need water. And there's other things that are maybe, I wouldn't say they're more minor, but they are different in that the rainy season is kind of gone a little bit haywire across sub-Saharan Africa. And so whereas farmers could predict pretty well when rains would come and the crop has been managed in many ways around the, that rainfall, Earlier this season, like super heavy rains came at a time when they wouldn't necessarily, I mean, they might have been expected, but that intensity might not have been expected or the frequency of the heavy rains might not have been expected. And if you've got little baby flowers on your cocoa trees, you know, those heavy rains will definitely kill them. And so, you know, there's moments like that that are also changing. At the start of this season, there were issues with rainfall that meant cocoa couldn't dry quite as well as it could in sunshine conditions. So, you know, there's all, all sorts of things that if you lump them all together, you could say that it must be frustrating for farmers. You know, it must be a source of frustration that they can't manage their crop in a way that they have been used to. 
But at the same time, like I said, there's plenty of cocoa still coming out of this part of the world. So they do manage it. In Asia also, it's a huge problem that people are basically cutting down their cacao and switching crops. But in Africa, to what extent are farmers actually able, even if they wanted to, to switch their crops from cacao? I, I just I just have never met a farmer that would even consider it, you know. I mean, not in the areas I work in, which are obviously the cocoa growing areas, but you know, and there are parts of Ghana, for example, where oil palm is massive and you know, every direction you look in you just see oil palm in every direction. But it's it's like cocoa is the main income source for literally millions of smallholders across this region. And it it certainly in Ghana to a lesser extent in Ivory Coast, but in both countries, I mean, I mean, really in Ghana, the level of government support and investment in this crop has been such that it's almost inconceivable that someone would be like, yeah, I'll do better with this other tree. It's just not, it's just not something that farmers have expressed to me as a desire or even something in their imagination. And that's not to say that farmers don't plant other things. Obviously, of course they do. There's no farm I've ever been on that doesn't have food crops or shade trees or, you know, whatever. Like there's lots of intercropping and farmers are extremely diverse in their, you know, livelihood options. But the, like the reality is cocoa here is, is kind of it. Wherever you go in Ghana, you will hear people say, Ghana is cocoa, cocoa is Ghana. And I think that pretty much sums it up. There's no other crop or no other plant that you can substitute and say that same thing. It's just, it's just not, cocoa is part of the national identity here. But you said a large proportion of the farmers. What proportion of the farmers you say rely upon cacao for their main source of income? Oh, I mean, in Ghana, most. There is other agriculture here. There are other crops, but farming here is pretty much cocoa. The other way to think about it is what does each crop bring into the national revenue? And like cocoa, I mean, it used to be like at times it's been number one, you know, it's been Ghana's biggest earner as an export. Gold is usually around the same. Now that there's oil, if I'm not much mistaken, the three are roughly equal. Maybe cocoa is down to like 25% or something, but I mean, it's a massive part of foreign exchange earnings of this country. Agriculture is very much tied to cocoa. Again, not exclusively, but it's the mainstay. You know, cocoa is the thing that if you are aspiring to farm something, you're pretty much going to aspire to farm cocoa. Certain parts of the country, there would be other options, particularly oil palm towards the west. Yeah, and then there's coconut, there's other things, but Pretty much cocoa is it. You also referenced earlier how the government has sort of infamously heavy hand in the cocoa industry, both Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, but I'm assuming also other countries in the region. What impact do you see such governmental intervention having? Maybe positive, negative, in between? Both. Ghana really has had the heaviest hand when it comes to government intervention in cocoa. You know, the Ivory Coast has also a, a version of a cocoa board that also deals with coffee. But really, when you talk about government intervention in cocoa, it's basically Ghana that 
we talk about and look to for understanding because it's it's far and away the most deeply invested and sustained over many, many decades, including the period of structural adjustment, the 80s and 90s when the World Bank and IMF were coming in really strongly. I mean, they still are doing this, obviously, but coming in saying, okay, get rid of all your marketing boards and like fire everybody and reduce all of your subsidies. Ghana stood up to that much more strongly than any other cocoa growing country in the world and was able to retain government oversight and involvement and in regulation of the industry here. And I would say that that has had tremendous benefits. It has historically created, fostered, maintained that high quality, the high levels of knowledge around best practices, the flavor continuity and the flavor homogeneity that is prized around Ghana. You know what you're going to get. When, when you buy cocoa from this country. And so the consistency, the high levels of knowledge, the attention to grading, um, you know, the inspection of cocoa that takes place. To me, these are all benefits. And not only that, but the research center here, like the Cocoa Research Institute of Ghana is a big part of that because they are the ones researching from many different angles, whether it's like hybrid development or which fertilizer you use or best post-harvest practices, whatever, disease management, I mean, enormous work that they've done. And so to me, that whole package is a benefit of government involvement and regulation. Obviously, on the flip side, the farmers here are pretty heavily taxed. The money to support all of that work has to come from somewhere. And there's no industrialization is not a word that we associate with this part of the world. So there's no other, like there's no corporate tax base. Like where do you get the money to do all this work? Well, you get it from taxing your agricultural exports. And obviously cocoa has been one of them. So I think it's possible to have a very philosophical discussion about where should our tax money go? And that's just as true in Ghana as it is anywhere else in the world. But it is a reality that the money to support all of these benefits in the industry you know has come from cocoa export revenues which means it doesn't go to the farmers what sort of prices do cocoa farmers need in order to live reasonably well off of cocoa and what prices are they actually getting relative to world market price yeah no that's a that's a great question and it's one that i've been trying to answer for myself in a different way to usual. And it gets back to what I was saying earlier about research methods. I've been working on a series of articles under the title, I am a cocoa farmer. And each one is an individual cocoa farmer. I, I profile an individual farmer and get into this topic of, well, many topics, but looking very closely at their relationship with cocoa and its financial impact on their life, etc. And so I have posed this question, like, what price would you need? Because there's living income studies now. We can look at these studies and, and they can tell us something about what price seems like it would elevate farmers. But I'm approaching it in a different way and just asking individual people, what would you need? Because I don't think we could say that there's any one price that's going to be the best for every farmer across Ghana or West Africa or wherever. Every context is economically specific. So I'm, I'm surprised a little bit sometimes. A farmer here recently told me, I think, I think the price he named was like 25% higher than what he was getting now, which is 
to my mind, like sounds like a big increase, but 25% of a low price is still a low price. <laughs> so I think I need to collect more data. I need to understand a little bit more about the relativity of price for different farmers to be able to answer that question effectively. Because I can look at a price in one way and say, gosh, that price is very, very low. How could anyone live, you know, comfortably with that price? But then if I have a farmer say to me, I need 25% higher. And to me, that's still low. But to them, that would represent a significant improvement to their livelihood. I have to put more thought into that. And I, and I honestly think that that's a conversation that is just happening not at all across the industry because everybody wants a number. Everyone wants the number, like the magical number that's going to be the one we all target and say, this is with this amount, people will no longer be poor or whatever it is measure they're using. I'm not convinced that such a number exists. And I would need to forward my own research quite a bit more before I would feel comfortable saying, this is what farmers typically say to me. I don't think that there may not be a typical. But what would you say is the price that most farmers are actually getting? relative to the world market price. For example, if you were to Google world market price today, you'd get something like 2600 US dollars per metric ton, whereas one year ago today it was around 1950, 1950 US dollars per ton. So like that right there is already a third increase over one year ago. What what do farmers actually see of that world market price? No, they're not they're not getting no, no, no. I mean, the way it works here is is like more of a percentage of the FOB price, which is the free on board price, which is the price that Ghana or Ivory Coast or whatever is able to get for their cocoa at the moment of export. The target is usually around 70%. Nowadays, it used to be, there have been periods of history where the percentage has been much, much, much lower than that. But nowadays, and this is like super approximate because there are other deductions made, there may be other prices paid, it's very secretive, nobody really knows in Ghana what prices are attached to the contracts. But if we take the world market price and then 70% of that is a reasonable estimate of what farmers are getting. To be honest, I'd have to look up. I don't always keep these numbers in my head and I've been in too many different countries recently, um, but it was like somewhere around, I don't know, $85 a bag or something, um, maybe a hundred bucks a bag. Farmers here tend to think in bags more than they do price per pound. And I think it was 475 CDs with some increase in the new season. I'd have to, honestly, I'd have to look it up. I have to, and I'm happy to do that and like send you the figures, but I don't want to say something incorrect because I just haven't returned to the, the producer price recently to get the exact number. That's fair, yeah. My last question is just, as consumers, when we start to dig into this idea of fair trade and big cocoa, big chocolate, we hear a lot of the lingo and we try and sort it out, but it seems like the cacao industry as a whole is just pretty convoluted and a bit confusing. Can you explain the idea of cacao futures or cocoa futures? What is that? Oh, yeah. The big commodities are traded on what's called a futures exchange. 
Cocoa is traded on two different ones, which is very unusual. Um, usually the agricultural commodities are just traded in New York, but cocoa is traded in London and New York on both stock exchanges there. And what it's basically is, you can reduce it quite simply to people are betting on the future price of cocoa. And so people gather a lot of information around weather, around current state of supply, you know, demand, predictions about supply and demand, you know, all different things, political circumstances in different growing countries. And they put all that information together and make their best guess on whether the price of cocoa is going to go up or down in the future. And basically place a bet on it and place a bet on it by if you think the price is going to go up, you will buy futures contracts. And the idea there is I would buy a futures contract for a certain amount of cocoa at this price today. And my bet is that the price of it's going to go up in some future date. And so when that date comes, if I was right, I would sell my futures contract and I would make the price difference because I bought it at a lower price. Now the price has gone higher and I would benefit from that price rise. So that's essentially what a futures exchange is. The other scenario where if you think Coca's price is going to go down, you sell contracts now with the hope of buying them back in the future at a reduced price. So it's a long-term game. You know, it's not betting like in a casino, you know, like you don't, you don't like pull the arm on the slot machine and, and hope for the best. Futures contracts are, are generally long-term investments where people will be looking not just at cocoa, but at many other things and buying and selling contracts in accordance with their predictions. Obviously, the other people who, the, the people who do that are called speculators because they're speculating on a price. Obviously, speculators aren't the only ones who do this. The big chocolate companies also do this. They buy contracts for cocoa on the futures exchanges in their case, it's called hedging. And what they're doing is hedging their bets because if they buy futures contracts now at a certain price and then they sell them in the future at a higher price, they too will make that price difference. They will benefit from the price rise. Then they take that money and they buy actual cocoa beans. So I probably should have said this earlier, but this whole scenario that I've been describing about buying futures contracts is, is actually just buying pieces of paper. You don't buy actual cocoa. There's another market, a physical market, where you actually purchase beans. So the two markets work in parallel with each other. You buy and sell contracts on the futures market to either speculate or to hedge your bets on what's happening on the physical market. The speculators are less obviously involved in the physical market, if at all. But if you're Barry Calbo, if you're Mars, if you're Nestle or whatever, you are very much invested in both. And you kind of make your bets on the futures market to help you in the purchases that you need to make on the physical market. So it is a very confusing topic, like you say, because you've got different exchanges working in parallel with each other. You've got different reasons why people would invest in one or the other. But the main premise is that people are making a bet on what's going to happen to the price in the future, and they're acting accordingly with that prediction in terms of how much they're buying and selling. The way that this all translates to farmers is that the futures exchanges is where the world market price for cocoa is ultimately set. 
that is where we get this number. So when we say the price for cocoa per metric ton today is such and such, you will look at London, you will look at New York, and then that is basically it. So that's the world market price. And so every single contract for buying physical beans doesn't follow that world market price exactly, but it is a very good indicator of the amount of money that's being physically exchanged when it comes to buying beans. It's kind of crazy. It's like another way that it's crazy. far away people are dictating their lives. Totally. Because especially when you look at the speculators, like they do not care about cocoa. It could be anything. The cocoa is the meaningless part. The only way it has meaning is with the research and the data collection that has to happen around cocoa so that you can make an informed bet so that your prediction will be a good one because you need information to do that. They don't just like pull the predictions out of thin air. But beyond that need for information to, to place a solid bet, there's no relationship with cocoa for the speculators. It's just, here's another way I might make some money. I'll gamble on cocoa. Yeah, yeah, it was a complicated answer. I'm very glad you were there to explain that because I would not have said it in such an eloquent way. <laughs> no, I'm sure you would have done a beautiful job. There's many ways to describe it. I try to get the complexity in there, but saying it in a simple way, but there's lots of other ways to say what's happening. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it was very accessible, but also kind of saddening. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, because the farmers ultimately are quite subject to the world market price, but they have no say. In fact, they feed they feed the bets, you know, because there's pod counters out there. <laughs> like there's there's people, there's weather stations, there's all kinds of ways that people gather information, gather data around cocoa to feed those bets, to feed those predictions. I have not seen really any examples of all of that information being fed back into the system in a way that's specifically for farmers' benefits. Maybe those systems exist and I just am not aware of them, but I have not seen that priority. I've not seen like, wow, we have all this rich information, you know, let's, let's find a way to share it with farmers so that they can really make use of it. Again, maybe that's happening and I, and I just don't know, but it's more the other way around. It's more like, Hey, let's set up some transparency technology so that we can survey the farmers at all times. And so consumers can know exactly what every farmer is doing at every moment. There's not so much of the flip side of like, okay, how can we feed information back to farmers in a way that's helpful to them? Tell them exactly how people are consuming their cocoa. Yeah. Well, oh gosh, no, that, no, my gosh, that would be like a totally like, <laughs> a waste. What are they going to do with that information? Uh-huh. Exactly. Knowing the topic of, of today's episode, is there anything else that you feel like you haven't been able to share yet that you'd like to share regarding cacao, especially in West Africa, but across Africa, if you have any knowledge about that. Yeah, I mean I would I would definitely say that the concern at the consumer end of things, obviously and for good reason, is whether or not we will have this beloved food for a long time in the way that we know at an affordable, accessible price. I, I don't think that's a bad priority. I love chocolate too. I eat it every single day. I hope that continues. So I, I, I wouldn't speak ill of that priority. What I would say is that the questions around sustainability and the way sustainability is often addressed seems to me very much to continue to support that set of priorities. And even if you look at the, the way sustainability programs happen, 
they're pretty much geared to maintaining a medium to long term enormous supply of cocoa as much as we can have for as long as we can have, no matter what it takes. You know, that that's in many ways the way sustainability functions in a very practical sense. I would say that, you know, the what's less part of the conversation around the future of chocolate is what do farmers think about that? Based on my own research, based on my own interactions with cocoa farmers and people across West Africa in general over all these years, is that having chocolate around in perpetuity is like no farmer's priority. And so how do we shift the conversation to better express what farmers themselves would say around sustainability. What does sustainability genuinely look like to someone who's growing cocoa as their main source of income? What priorities would they bring into the conversation and how really, again, going back to what I said earlier in our conversation is getting beyond the superficial because farmers do have some basic needs that they are constantly trying to fulfill. It's generally for inputs in West Africa. It's generally for fertilizer, for spraying of the trees, even for machetes. The basic things they need to keep their crop alive is often where their, their first response that I get when I say, like, what do you need? So that is one answer to sustainability from a farmer's perspective. I think there's still room to even take the conversations beyond that and find out beyond your basic need for inputs, which is a valid need, what else might make cocoa look more sustainable to you? And I think that then if we can have more of those kinds of conversations, we might learn some things that we don't even dream of now. I'm not a farmer. I don't know what I would say, (laughs) and but the farmers know what they would say. And I think we can really push as an industry, as people who care about the future of chocolate, for example, to extend the invitation to farmers to participate in that conversation as well.